and functional. Several depressions in the snow around it indicated it had been moved more than once, which gave the man on the snow machine some idea of how long the homestead had been there. Next was a combined garage and shop, through the open door of which could be seen a snow machine, a small truck, and assorted related gear. He found the sight of these indubitably 20th century products infinitely reassuring. Next to the cabin stood an elevated stand for a dozen 55-gallon barrels of Chevron diesel fuel stacked on their sides. Immediately to the right of the cabin was a greenhouse, its visqueen panels opaque with frost. Next to it, and completing the semicircle, stood a cache, elevated some ten feet in the air on peeled log stilts, with a narrow ladder leading to its single door. Paths through the drifts of snow had been cut with almost surgical precision linking every structure to its neighbor. The resulting half-circle was packed firm between tidy berms as level as a clipped hedge. One trail led directly to the woodpile, which the man judged held at least three cords, split as neatly as they were stacked. Another pile of unsplit rounds stood next to the chopping block. There were no footprints outside the trails. It seemed that this was one homesteader who kept herself to herself. The glow of the wood of each structure testified to a yearly application of log oil. There wasn't a shake missing from any of the roofs. The usual dump of tires, too worn to use but too good to throw away. The pile of leftover lumber cut in odd lengths but still good for something, someday. The stack of Blazo boxes to be used for shelves. The shiny hill of Blazo tins someday to carry water. The haphazard mound of empty, rusting, fifty-five-gallon drums to be cut into stoves when the old one wore out. All these staples were missing. It was most unbush-like and positively un-Alaskan. He had a suspicion that when the snow melted, the grass wouldn't dare to grow more than an inch tall, or the tomatoes in the greenhouse bear less than twelve to the vine. He was assailed by an unexpected and entirely unaccustomed feeling of inadequacy and wished suddenly that he'd taken the time to search out a parka and boots, the winter uniform of the Alaskan bush, before making this pilgrimage. At least then he would have been properly dressed to meet Jack London, who was undoubtedly inside the cabin in front of him, writing to build a fire, and making countless future generations of Alaskan junior high English students miserable in the process. He would have been unsurprised to see Samuel Benton Steele mushing up the trail in his red mountie coat, and flat-brimmed mounty hat. He would merely have turned to look for Soapy Smith, moving fast in the other direction. He realized finally that his mouth was hanging half open, closed it with something of a snap, and wondered what kind of time warp they had wandered through on the way here, and if they would be able to find it again on the return to their own century. The big man switched off the engine. The waiting silence fell like a vengeful blow and his passenger was temporarily stunned by it. He rallied. All this scene needs is the northern lights, he said, and we could paint it on a gold pan and get twenty bucks for it, off a little old lady from Duluth. The big man grinned a little. The smaller man took a deep breath, and the frozen air burned into his lungs. Unused to it, he coughed. So this is her place? This is it, the big man confirmed, his deep voice rumbling over the clearing. As if to confirm his words, they heard the door to the cabin slam shut. The other man raised his eyebrows, cracking more ice off his face. Well, at least now we know she's home, the big man said placidly, and dismounted. Son of a bitch, what is that? His passenger said, 
his face, if possible, becoming even more colorless. The big man looked up to see an enormous gray animal with a stiff ruff and a plumed tail trotting across the yard in their direction, silent and purposeful. Dog, he said laconically. Dog, huh? the other man said, trying and failing to look away from the animal's unflinching yellow eyes. He groped in his pocket until his gloved fingers wrapped around the comforting butt of his thirty-eight police special. He looked up to find those yellow eyes fixed on him with a thoughtful, considering expression, and he froze. "'Looks like a goddamn wolf to me,' he said finally, trying hard to match the other man's nonchalance. "'Nah,' the big man said, holding out one hand, fingers curled, palm down. "'Only half. Hey, Mutt, how are you, girl?' She extended a cautious nose, sniffed twice, and sneezed. Her tail gave a perfunctory wag.